Well, in review, um, man, Jesus kept quite the schedule, didn't he? Uh, Just constantly on the move and constantly being bombarded with people's needs, uh, controversy, accusations, um, all kinds of stuff. But so far in our chapter, he has called Matthew and uh, he's supped with him in his home. And, uh, and afterwards, Jesus' disciples, we know, were confronted um, by the Pharisees about their master who um, is eating with tax collectors and sinners. <clears throat> and then sometime later, Jesus was confronted by the disciples of John about why his disciples did not participate in traditional fasting. And uh, so Jesus is getting it from all sides because... You know, really, he didn't play by their rules. Uh, he didn't fit into what we might call their, their messianic mold. Uh, he didn't meet their idea of what it was to be holy. People had different opinions about what holiness was. <clears throat> and he didn't meet their standards of what was religiously devout. There's varying opinions on what is uh, religiously okay. Uh, how about that? Um, Jesus just did not conform. Uh, What they expected the Messiah to be was something other than Jesus. And and I think that's what makes Jesus so much fun, is he's this extremely controversial person, and he's constantly challenging all of the religious and cultural norms. And and it's just shaking things up. But people in need, they didn't care, did they? They just knew that they needed Jesus. And um, so, yeah. So, why don't you... I forgot my Bible. I've never been late to the pulpit. Can I borrow your Bible? Hey, I have to eat humble pie from time to time. What's that? That's okay. It's fun to borrow Mike's stuff. This this is a, a sanctioned translation, right? Okay, just making sure. It's the print is extremely small, by the way. No, no, I'm not, I'm not ready for that kind of humility yet, so, <laughs> all right, are you ready? Will you please stand for the reading of God's word? <laughs> okay, while he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshiped him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him. And so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around and when he saw her, he said, be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, He said to them, make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all the land. Thanks. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son. We thank you that he had all authority in heaven and earth to heal the sick, to command nature, Lord, and even to raise the dead. And as we'll see, and as we know, 
you gave him authority to take his own life back again. And um, so Lord, help all of those realities to dawn upon us so that like the individuals in our story, we would just believe and trust you. And, um, and Lord, we just lift up Isaac to you, Lord. Um, Lord, you have the sovereign prerogative and wisdom to do things however you please and for your own purposes. And um, some of those are obviously concealed from us. But Lord, we know that you love Isaac and his family. And we pray that you would continue to just, just hold them, Lord, in your grip. And Lord, we pray that you would be with Isaac. <clears throat> and Lord, that you would, I, I pray that you just take his pain away. Just relieve him of all that. And um, that he could just charge forward in rehab and uh, to a homecoming, Lord. And so just encourage his heart. Um, help him to fight against any kind of fatigue of just being stuck there in the hospital. And um, give him motivation, give him courage. And the same, Lord, for his family. And Lord, we pray for Al that he would just continue to recover from his infection. His body would heal. And um, bring him back to us quickly, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. I'm assuming that this is all sick people. They're all sick people. Okay. <laughs> all right, we better move on here. Verse 18, while he spoke these things to them, that is, he was still in this conversation with the disciples of John, behold, a ruler came and worshiped him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her, and she will live. That is a declaration of faith, isn't it? She will live. Yeah. So Jesus is interrupted by this desperate father. And he just comes to Jesus and falls down at his feet. The New King James Version says that he worshiped Jesus. But <clears throat> the, Greek, the Greek word, while it can describe what someone may do when they worship, like bowing down, the word does not necessarily mean to worship. I think it's a little early uh, at this point for the man to be worshiping. Uh, the word simply just means to kneel in, you know, or bow down uh, reverentially. Uh, it's a posture of submission and humility. So I don't believe he's worshiping Jesus at this point, <clears throat> but I believe that it's coming quickly that he will be a worshiper of Jesus. Amen? I think that he's on his knees just out of absolute desperation. He's broken in grief for what he knows Jesus can do for him. And he's just pleading with him to come. Um, from the other Gospels, uh, we know the man that his name is Jairus, if that's how you say it. And uh, he was a ruler of the local synagogue. Now, every synagogue had a board of elders. <clears throat> and what they did was they oversaw, they managed the affairs of the synagogue. Uh, it's kind of the order within it during their services. And they also had charge of the building. Now, these guys... Uh, the ruling elders were not to be confused with the rabbis or the Pharisees. Uh, theology was not their, their speciality. Um, <clears throat> uh, whereas, I know that's not how you say that, Laurie. It's just, it's just a fun way to say it. Um, management was their thing, okay? Uh, but nonetheless, we have um, this well-respected Jewish man uh, coming to Jesus. Now, at this time in the historical narrative, 
it wasn't risky for leaders to come to Jesus for help because the Pharisees, though their opinion of Jesus is quickly uh, becoming concrete in a bad way, it hasn't quite come to that point. Now, later on, <clears throat> excuse me, they will forbid people uh, to associate with Jesus lest they be uh, removed from the synagogue. And we'll talk about that later because um, being removed from the synagogue is not like being kicked out of Calvary Chapel, okay? Uh, the social and religious ramifications were severe, severe. And uh, you could lose your job, family, friends, everything. It was a big deal. But we'll get to that uh, later on. So at this point, the Pharisees are still, they're becoming critical. Their opinion is, is, of him is not good, but it's still developing. And uh, before long, <clears throat> it'll be very clear. So Jairus comes and says his daughter is dead, and he is desperate. Now, I, I, I love this story because this father's desperation over his little girl does not fit neatly into the greater narrative of history. Okay, uh, it's true that across the pagan world at that time, even in this world, I, I mean at this time, and even among the Jews at that time, little girls and women in general were not cherished by men. It's just, it's just true, okay? But that wasn't the norm for all men and all fathers, and it should not have been the norm for any godly men in the scriptures, amen? But there is a number of men and fathers in the Bible who highly cherished the women in their lives. Um, Isaac loved Rebekah, loved Rebekah. And in fact, in the, the account there, uh, he didn't know anything about her. He didn't know anything. It says she got off the camel, she covered herself, so he didn't even know what she looked like. And it says that he took her to himself and he loved her. He loved her. <clears throat> Jacob was crazy about Rachel. Uh, the whole narrative there is hilarious. Reuben and Levi loved their sister Dinah, big time. <laughs> Moses cherished his sister Moriah. Caleb loved and cherished his daughter, uh, Aksa. Uh, you wouldn't know that he loved her by the name he gave her. Uh, Jephthah loved his daughter. Boaz was giddy. He was giddy over Ruth. The Song of Solomon reveals a man who deeply loved his wife. And then besides all this, God condemns the mistreatment of women and wives, Malachi. His law always protected women. His law commands that children honor not just their father, but their, their mother. <clears throat> and it doesn't say, you know, children honor the father more than the mother. It's equal honor to both. In Ephesians 5, wives are to be loved as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And in 1 Peter 3, husbands are to be understanding of their wives and to highly esteem them. That's a different kind of uh, perspective than what we see in, in the history of the world. Amen? It's very different. And so Jairus simply falls in line with God's heart for his little girl. And so when she died, his world just is coming to pieces. Uh, Mark... Uh, actually records Jairus using a, a term of endearment. He calls the girl his little daughter. Uh, William Hendrickson, a uh, uh, Bible commenter, he, he provides this comment about Jairus's use of language. He, he says, this is tender affection. Jairus says, my little daughter. He says, at the age of 12, many children 
resent being considered little. But this father, but to this father, the child is still little, with emphasis, however, not so much on her tender years as on her loveliness in his eyes. She's very special. This is his sweetheart. Now, what he says to Jesus is interesting. He says, come and lay hands on her and she will live. Now, it's my, it's my sanctified guess that Jairus was among that horrified crowd earlier on when Jesus dared to reach out and lay his hand on the leper. And you know, everybody was like, <gasps> and then the instant he touched him, the leper was not only cleansed, but he was healed. And so as Jairus' daughter grew sicker and sicker and sicker, you can just imagine that all he could think about was Jesus' hand going out and, and touching his, his little girl like he did the leper. Must have left just a deep impression in his mind. <clears throat> now, it's worth noting uh, how you know, he connected healing with Jesus' touch. But you remember the centurion. Jesus said that he would go with him to heal his child servant. And the centurion said, There's, that isn't necessary. Um, I understand authority. I have authority over people. You have authority over everything. And so you don't actually need to be present. If you would just give the word, he said, my servant will be healed. So Jesus doesn't have to touch. But there's something about, you know, I think seeing Jesus do that is, is how they connected their, their faith to that. Uh, however faith works. I still haven't figured faith out yet completely. Uh, I just know what the scriptures say. And um, I know I should exercise it, right? Yeah. So this made no difference for Jesus, but he wanted to do for this man what he desperately needed. Come, touch her. She will live. That's, that's faith. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. <clears throat> and suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. There's people of faith everywhere around Jesus, huh? This is crazy. I mean, Jesus is, he's in high demand, isn't he? High demand. So for whatever reason, uh, Matthew gives us the most abbreviated telling of this story. Mark has the longest telling, which is surprising to me because Mark's, everything else is so abbreviated. And uh, Luke, you think, would be, have the longest story being the doctor, but it's actually Mark. He gives us the longest rendition of this story here. It, let, me, let me read it to you. He says, Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now she was probably doing this quietly 
and a bit reluctantly because she's not actually supposed to be in that crowd of people. And we'll talk about it a little bit in a minute. Notice, though, how similar her faith was to that of Jairus. You know, Jairus believed that if Jesus touched his little girl, she, uh, she would be healed. The woman believed that if she touched Jesus, she would be healed. But there's, all, there's some, some differences as well. Jairus was exercising faith for someone else to be healed. And the woman was exercising faith for herself to be healed. But in both instances, it's faith that Jesus honored, right? It's faith. Now let's talk about this woman for a minute. It says that she had an issue of blood for 12 years. So she had been suffering from this affliction for as long as Jairus' daughter had been alive. Interesting connection in the text, right? Now, most commentators assume that her affliction is related to like abnormal menstruation, and, and perhaps it is, but the text doesn't tell us. The grammar suggests that her bleeding was perpetual, certainly slow, but enough to endure, induce suffering of some kind. Uh, she would likely be anemic. Um, my medical sources tell me that she could have experienced a variety of symptoms. Uh, I'll read them to you since they were given to me. Um, Fatigue, poor concentration, shortness of breath, leg cramps, craving for unusual food like dirt, tachycardia, headaches, heart failure, hearing loss, tongue pain, dry mouth, hair loss, trouble swallowing. We don't know which of these she suffered from, maybe a combination of them, but she was miserable. And she had been miserable for 12 years. But the thing is, is that this woman's troubles were more complex than her, her physical suffering. As Mark pointed out, she's financially ruined from her medical bills, and she's worse off because of the treatment she's received. And from a religious and social standpoint, this woman, uh, similar to the leper, but not as extreme, was essentially untouchable. Because of her issuing of blood, according to Leviticus 15:19, she was considered perpetually unclean, ceremonially speaking. She could not worship in the temple. She could not be intimate with her husband if she had one. She could not embrace her own children if she had any. She could not mingle with society because whatever she touched and whoever touched her would also be rendered ceremonially unclean, at least until evening, though her, for herself, she remained in that state at all times. If her bleeding is as perpetual as the text says, she has not been near the temple She has not been able to join corporate worship for 12 years. That's a lot of isolation, yeah. And so, you know, this demonstrates how desperate she was. She's quietly in a crowd of people. She's touching people and they're touching her. So guess what? (laughs) Everybody's unclean. (laughs) Like a leper, she wasn't supposed to be there. She's making, she's causing problems. And something that makes this story uh, like the, the healing of the leper, so fascinating is this, this dialogue between God and the prophet Haggai in chapter 2, verses 13, or 11 through 13. God is speaking to Haggai, and he says, Haggai, I want you to go to the priests, and I want you to ask them a question. I want you to ask them this. And this is a, an abbreviated conversation. I'm abbreviating their conversation. But basically, if a holy thing touches an unholy thing. Will the holy thing make the unholy thing holy? According to the law of Moses, the answer is no. 
holy things do not make unholy things holy by virtue of touching them. So, okay, we'll ask him this too. But what if an unclean thing touches something clean? Will the unclean thing make the clean thing unclean? What's the answer? Yes, the clean thing will become unclean by virtue of being touched by the unclean. So holy things cannot make unholy things holy by touching it, but unclean things can make clean things unclean. So everyone she touched was made unclean, but those principles do not apply to Jesus. This is important, okay? When that which is unclean touches or is touched by that which is most holy, there's a different result, okay? When she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, she was not only healed of her issue of blood, she was instantly made clean. Her presence in public was instantly made okay. Yeah, just like with the leper. The leper did not transfer his uncleanness to Jesus when Jesus touched him. Jesus cleansed him and he healed him. Okay. Jesus both superseded the ceremonial law and the law of nature when he touched the unclean and then he healed them. So Jesus, you guys, <clears throat> as Matthew has been trying to point out, Jesus is not to be compared with one of the prophets. We're not dealing with a prophet. We're not dealing with just another man. We're dealing with the God-man. He's not one of them. He is the one that the prophets served. He was, he was using the prophets as instruments to perform the will of God on earth. You get it? They looked to him. It was Christ that they worshiped. Yeah. So this whole thing is just so amazing. It's so beautiful. And for the sake of this woman, <clears throat> Jesus did more than just heal her. He fully restored her to her family. Imagine 12 years of isolation, 12 years of, of having to avoid human touch. He fully restored her to the community. He fully restored her to religious life. He brought her out of solitary confinement. She can now touch and be touched. She can attend all family functions. She can worship in the temple. She can participate in the Passover. She can enjoy the feasts of Israel. He gave her life back to her. It's amazing, this miracle. Verse 22. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. Again, Matthew's account is the shortest. Uh, as we read in Mark Jesus, when, after she touched the hem of his garment, Jesus sensed that power had gone out of him. So he stopped and he turned around to identify the one who touched him. And of course, the woman, <clears throat> she, it says she was full of fear. She was full of fear. And it may be simply that people in the community knew her. <laughs> and there she is in this crowd of people. Okay? And so she reveals herself. And Jesus said to her, be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. What does that mean? Your faith has made you well. There are those who think that faith is an entity of its own and that if you're able to conjure enough of it, you can change reality or you can make things materialize, like heal someone or be healed. They can do it with their finances too. It's, it's, it's amazing. Now, many within the, it's called the Word of Faith movement, they believe this. After all, uh, they are little gods as they say, okay? And, uh, but that is not what Jesus meant. And it never means that in the scriptures. Jesus healed the woman in honor of her faith, okay? If faith is, or uh, 
if, if faith is what actually heals, then there's no need for Jesus. You get it? If faith heals people, there's no need for God. Okay? One could simply have faith in faith, and they would be healed, or they could heal other people. Okay? But faith is something exercised toward an object, and faith is not that object. Christ is the object of faith. So when God grants healing, and he has to grant healing, mind you, the exercising of faith toward God is often the condition for the healing. You understand, nobody gets healed unless God grants it. And then he gets to decide the condition on which he heals someone. You get it? He's, he's sovereign. Um, nobody bosses God around with their faith, as some word of faith people teach, essentially. Uh, he grants it, and then he grants the conditions for it. And in, and in these circumstances here, faith was the condition. Faith was the condition, <clears throat> and, and nothing else. If this woman had not exercised faith in Christ's ability to heal, she would not have been healed. But she put her faith in Jesus, and God honored it, and she was cleansed. She was healed. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, make room, for the girl is not dead but sleeping, and they ridiculed him. Now, in the Jewish culture uh, at this time, and, and even all the way back at least to the time of Jeremiah, uh, we don't have any references prior to that. There were both volunteer and professional mourners. How strange does that seem? Okay, yeah, uh, volunteer and professional. And they would come, some hired, to come and wail, play instruments at the location of someone's death. Now, uh, the sincerity and motive of, those, uh, motive of those involved in the custom was questionable, right? Matthew calls them noisy. They were noisy. They were annoying. And Jesus himself doesn't appear to be impressed with the whole scene. Okay? In fact, he tells them to get out, to go away. Now, the, the, the New King James, it doesn't really convey the sense of the Greek. What, is, what, is the, what does it say? Make room. Uh, nowhere in the rest of the New Testament does it mean make room. It means to leave. Okay? It means to get out. And uh, so Jesus tells them to leave. Their so-called service was unnecessary, if not completely uncalled for. Now, telling them to go away was one thing, but when Jesus said that the girl was not dead, but sleeping, they began to ridicule him, to ridicule. The Greek word for ridicule is, is katagalao. It means to laugh at someone in a mocking or condescending manner. They thought Jesus an idiot, yeah. The King James renders it, and they laughed him to scorn. I think that's a great way uh, to render that. Uh, laughed him to scorn, simply because he said the girl was sleeping. Well, to Jesus, um, the girl might, has, might have well have been sleeping, okay? But she was dead. She was dead. She wasn't breathing. Her heart had stopped, okay? Jesus is introducing a euphemism, a euphemism, that would later become a part of regular Christian vocabulary to speak of the dead, okay? Because dead believers are dead temporarily, as if they were sleeping. Paul will use the same terminology to speak of death in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, uh, chapter 15, verse 51, Ephesians 5, 14, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 14, and 5, 10. That's a lot of use, right? It's a lot of use. 
So Jairus' daughter was indeed dead, but death is no challenge for the author of life. It says, but when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went out into all the land. So after the crowd was escorted out of the house, Jesus went into where the little girl was lying. He takes her by the hand, and the girl arose. Now, I love Mark's account again at this point because he goes in, he grabs her hand, and he says, Talitha Kumai. Talitha in the Aramaic is little girl. Kumai means get up. Talitha Kumai. The author of life commanded life to re-enter the girl, and she sat up. Could you imagine the reaction of the mother? (laughs) She kept crying, (laughs) but it was a lot different at that point. Yeah. And then, it doesn't say here in Matthew's account, but Mark and Luke report that Jesus then told the parents to tell no one what happened. Tell no one what happened. That's an interesting thing. (laughs) But something must be said, right? there, There were all those people who knew of the girl's condition, and they knew that Jesus, this local healer, had gone into the room, and when he left, the girl was fine. So something had to be said, right? I can imagine that in their excitement, uh, they couldn't just keep quiet. And, and, and how would you communicate this? Uh, they couldn't lie and say, well, actually, she was sleeping. I mean, she was napping. And, uh, and, and they could use that euphemism, I guess, but uh, no one would understand. And, and other people, they had, you know, how do you, how do you navigate that in conversation? Uh, so the word naturally got out, right? And it, it spread across the land like wildfire. So the question is, why did Jesus not want the news of this to get out? I mean, he's already done a lot of crazy miracles in a public setting. Uh, you know, the healing of the leper was a big deal because that hadn't happened since the time of Moses. One Israelite, only one in history, had been healed of leprosy prior to that. And Jesus did it in front of tons of people. He healed the paralytic in front of tons of people and in front of the Pharisees. He's done all kinds of different things. He's cast out demons. Now, of course, his commanding of nature on on the the water was confined to him and his disciples, which that's a crazy miracle. Uh, The one that he did with the demoniac on the, the east side of the lake, that was in front of Gentiles and weren't a part of the Jewish community. So that was a little more secretive, but a lot of them were made public. So why, what's, what's the issue of this one? Why must this one be kept quiet? Yeah. Healing people, you guys, is one thing. Raising the dead is another. Raising the dead is another. Commanding life is different than commanding illness. Having the power of life says something about the one who wields it. So this is completely different. This kind of miracle had the potential uh, to hasten Jesus to the cross. And you remember in the book of John, he's constantly saying, uh, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Okay, the the full revelation of himself to the people uh, and then pushing him to the cross. It, It wasn't to be hastened. There was timing for it all. And this miracle would have hastened Jesus to the cross purely because of the envy of the Pharisees, the envy of them, okay? So, of course, they nitpick about his theology and the Sabbath issue and some of his comments. 
But the real issue is Jesus was drawing their attention away from them and onto himself. And so their envy is just, was brewing and brewing. But something like this would just rob them of all of their popularity. And that's why Jesus wants the miracle to be kept quiet. But this miracle, raising the dead, is the miracle, at least until Jesus takes his own life back again at the resurrection. Okay? But as we've been talking about, Matthew is, is developing Jesus for us. He's communicating by the acts of Jesus, of who Jesus is. We've said it before, John spends a lot of time uh, giving us statements of deity, of declarations of deity. Matthew is more subtle with it, I guess, sort of, but he is, by the demonstration of what Jesus does, he is showing us that he is God Almighty in the flesh. Amen? And this miracle, by commanding life, settles the issue. And so Jesus says, at this time, I just want you to keep it quiet. Now, later on, we know that he raises Lazarus. And you remember what happens after that. Those that witnessed went and tattled on him to the Pharisees. And then the plans were being made. Let's get this boy to the cross fast. Okay, because he is, he is ush- he's drawing Israel to himself. So this was the miracle. It tells us exactly who Jesus is. He is God in the flesh. He is the sovereign almighty. Amen. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Letting you out a little early. Please let the, the, uh, the teachers finish with your kids. So fellowship quietly if you would. I guess you don't have to be quiet. The walls are insulated. So let's pray and then we'll, we'll continue in worship. Father, we thank you for the testimony of your son. And Lord, the, the, Lord, the point is like the, the woman who was afflicted And like Jairus and so many others, the point is that we would see Jesus for who he is and we would believe. So Lord, I pray that we would have the faith of the people in our story. That if you do something, if you you touch, Lord, there's healing. There's, There's rising from the dead. There's salvation. There's deliverance. There's hope. So Lord, help us to believe as these people did. To trust who you are. You're not just another man but you are God who has condescended to be a man for our sake. Help us to understand. Help us to believe. And Lord, help us now to worship you accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.